The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live Market Watch Edition. Uh, my name is Chris Matthews. I'm a reporter with Market Watch. And today I have with me uh, Brad DeLong, who is a professor of economics at UC Berkeley and who also served um, in the in the Clinton Treasury Department. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Uh, Brad, thanks so much for joining us today. No, thank you very much for inviting me. First, I kind of want to touch on the on the news of the day, the news of the past many days, which is inflation. We have yeah. persistent inflation here in the U.S. and also in other wealthy countries abroad. And so I, I want to just sort of ask you basically, um, what is causing this inflation? And 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 moreover, do is there some consensus among ec- economists on what causes inflation and how you fight it? Well, you know, there are two things that are causing this inflation. Um, the first is that we're trying to reopen the economy after the plague quickly and reopen it completely and reopen it in the right configuration. And that means we actually want to have a little bit of inflation right now. That is, after the, we recover from the plague, we're going to have a different economy than we had beforehand. You know, with more goods production, with more delivery, with more webcam operators. And so we've got to get wages rising in the expanding sectors in order to give people the signal that this is a place where they should go to work in order to pull people into the expanding sectors. And also we're seeing an awful lot of bottlenecks emerge. And when a bottleneck emerges, you want the price of the bottleneck commodity to go up to concentrate everyone's mind on, gee, maybe we should find a substitute, or gee, maybe we should increase supply. Um, We saw this in 1947 when we demobilized from the Cold War or from the World War II and reconfigured the economy. We saw this in 1951 when we remobilized for the Cold War. Um, In both cases, a brief episode of inflation that then passes through without, in those cases, the Federal Reserve even lifting a finger. So that's one of the things that's going on. The second thing that's going on is Vladimir Putin's attack on Ukraine and the consequent enormous disruption of energy and grain markets. You know, there may well be famine in Egypt and Nigeria um, this year. Um, Europe may well have a very cold winter as they're frantically attempting to replace the potential natural gas from Russia that may get cut off with other energy sources. And now it seems someone is blowing holes in pipelines. Um, That's going to produce a standard energy and oil supply shock inflation. Now we have both of these things coming together, the reopening shock and also the wartime supply shock. In addition, there's the risks that inflation expectations may become entrenched, in which case we would then have a stagflation problem. Um, plus episodes of inflation are the principal time when people lose confidence in governments. And when they lose, when people lose confidence in governments, then 
you get incorporated into asset and other prices, what I saw yesterday being called a government is a moron premium. You know, the value of the currency falls, interest rates rise, and inflation rises um, all at once. And all of these things are going on right now. And it's the Federal Reserve and right now the Bank of England's problem to try to figure out how to deal with this and guide us to a soft landing. And so we're seeing here in the U.S. the Fed raising rates at a very aggressive pace. Um, yeah. You see the Biden administration, you know, somewhat reducing budget deficits. Um, and then in the U.K., yeah. perhaps we're seeing maybe the opposite with Yes. Tax cuts, yes. and and then today yeah. the the Bank of England announcing that it's going to be buying uh, UK debt. Can you can yes. you compare and contrast these two approaches? Well, in the U.S., right, the core PCE deflator, the particular price index the Federal Reserve watches most closely, um, is hanging out at five percent per year, where it's been hanging out for a year um, during the reopening shock. We thought we would see it declining now, but it isn't because of follow through and blowback from the energy price shock that hit us in February and March as well. Um, the U.S. at the moment has an inflation rate at 5% that we think is likely to go down somewhat over the next year and a half when we'd really rather have it be at 2%. Um, and you know, the Federal Reserve did one huge round of tightening back last winter and is in the middle of another huge round of tightening now. The question is, will they go on to do a third round this fall or will they talk tough but pause and wait and see what will happen? Because you know, its first two tightenings really have not had time to materially affect the economy, right? That is, they've turned the rudder, but the ship has not yet responded. Britain is very bizarre and very interesting over the past week. And right now there's a large economist scrum. The subtext is, does anyone really know what's going to, what's happening? And there are lots of theories out there. Um, there's the theory that this is simply that the financial markets have decided this government is especially moronic and that there is a very large moron premium that has just been priced into all British assets. Um, which is why the pound is way down and British interest rates are way up and inflation expectations are way up. There are people who say that there are um, substantial financial flaws in the structure of British assets right now and that there are insiders who are front running because they think that with you know, the interest rate effects of Truss's proposed tax cuts, um, something is breaking and they want to get out in front. And there are the people who say that there are people who are panicked, who are thinking that something is breaking. But actually, this is one of the times to buy because there's blood in the streets. And you know, the panic is greatly, over, is greatly um, overstated. And the Bank of England is actually in there maintaining orderly markets and will manage to stabilize the situation quickly. And the entire new conservative government appears to be in hiding. Yes, it's uh, lots of drama mm -hmm. over there in the UK. Um, yeah. I'm sure we could go on on these topics for a while, but I do want to get to your to your book, uh, which is a history, an economic history yeah. of the 20th century. Um, yeah. You do something sort of interesting. You start the, the 20th century in the year 1870. 
Yeah, uh, you end it in the year 2010. Can you mm -hmm. can you talk about why why you chose that frame? Well, 1870 um, 1870 is the date that all of the institutions we need to support what we quote what Simon Kuznets first labeled modern economic growth fall into place. You know that before 1870, even during the Industrial Revolution, the rate of increase of technology technology is slow. You know, too slow to outrun increases in human population. You get more resources because of better technology, and you find a generation later that the population has grown, so you have smaller farm sizes and are short of raw materials. So living standards really haven't budged. And then around 1870, the worldwide rate of technology growth more than quadruples. And so afterwards, for the first time, we have the possibility of a rich world because after 1870, humanity's technological competence is doubling every generation, which has given us now a world that is on average 10 times as rich as the very poor world of 1870. And so the history since 1870 is people recognizing this enormous wealth shock, or rather this enormous series of wealth shocks coming down and trying to figure out how to take advantage of it how to use the wealth that technology and the market are creating for us and how to mitigate the various downsides that the process of Schumpeterian creative destruction unleashed produces. And, and so it's, you, you go through some of the causes of this explosion in, yeah. in the book, you talk about the invention of research labs, the right. invention of uh, right. corporations and, and these sorts right. of business organizational tools yeah. Yeah. Um, is that, do we need another uh, set of those to continue? It would be nice, you know, it would be nice to have them, mm -hmm. right? That command and control institutions are not great and bureaucracies are not great. And markets can be seriously flawed where there are substantial externalities or where you don't like the underlying distribution of wealth and income. You know, because after all, the market responds to effective demand, and you can only have effective demand if you have wealth, at least some wealth. We would love to have other and better ways of organizing ourselves on a large scale. And um, there are people who point to hopes that the information age will help us develop some, um, something that is better than either the cathedrals, the large-scale organized cathedrals, or the decentralized chaotic bazaars that we know how to build. So far, however, not great, not great luck in creating such institutions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, going forward, if you were going to give advice to entrepreneurs, business leaders, um, might it be to think creatively along those lines? Uh, how do we um, better reorganize? Very creatively around organizational lines, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, Apple is now the most valuable company in the world, you know, because Steve Jobs saw the potential reach of global value chains in making it possible for him to actually make at a, I won't claim Apple's top of the line iPhone is in any sense affordable, um, but it's at least semi-affordable, right? It's $1,200 rather than $3,000. Um, that the way of creating an integrated global value chain would make it possible to provide you know, the high quality products he thought that Johnny Ive could design and that his engineers could kind of um, implement 
at a semi-affordable price. And so Jobs saw that possibility. He gave Tim Cook the baton. And now you have the most amazingly complicated distributed division of productive labor the world has ever seen. You know, stretching from Cupertino to Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation's fabs in, um, on the island of Taiwan and all the way across half the globe. Um, there are going to be similar opportunities in the next generation um, and entrepreneurs should be looking for them. Moreover, entrepreneurs should look very, very warily at politicians who want to return to the past, right? To any past, to FDR's past or to Ronald Reagan's past. You know, because with technology doubling in its effective power every generation, you know, what that means is sort of whatever econo-social econo -social network software code for running society you had a generation ago, um, it worked because it was running on top of the technological hardware of a generation ago, but the technological hardware of society now is new. And so you need new politicians with new ideas and new ways of governing the world if it's going to be prosperous and stable. I just want to, I want to take a, a moment to, to tell the audience, feel free to uh, send your questions yes. uh, to Brad in the Q&A and, and hopefully we'll get to some of those. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned, um, you sort of hinted at the importance of globalization um, yeah. in, in economic growth, uh, mm -hmm. certainly with Apple's business model. Um, how important is globalization? Are you worried that we're seeing a reverse of, of globalization with tensions between the US and China? Um, there certainly are tendencies to reverse kind of economic globalization, right? That you know, we had a very high degree of, you know, economic interdependence with the construction of the global value chain economy over the past generation. And various politicians now want to weaponize this interdependence for good and for ill in various ways, which means that companies and others, um, and especially governments, are going to have to think about important ways that they can make global value chains more robust. It looks like this move, this tendency, which is moving strongly throughout the world right now, is going to be the best thing imaginable for Intel, right? which needs a lot of help and needs a lot of money because so far it has not been able to match, say, the capital expenditures of its chief competitors, Samsung and TSMC, that are pulling ahead of it. And that that's definitely going to be a thing to factor in um, in the future. On the other hand, you know, globalization in communications and globalization in culture continues to roar forward at a remarkably rapid pace. Um, that with respect to talking to people in other countries and with respect to figuring out what they're thinking and, you know, and how they might help you, either in providing you with things that you might buy or learn or in learning from and buying from you, um, those are still going to expand even as governments attempt to weaponize this economic interdependence and even as others try to worry about creating more robustness inside um, the supply chain. And, and, and sort of to, to go further on this, this point about uh, US-China tensions, throughout your narrative, yeah. 
you talk about how geopolitical competition drives technological growth, the, the two world wars maybe being an example of that. Uh, I mean, how, how important is that in your framework? And, and, and the Cold War as well. Um, well, you know, it is. The market has a very hard time um, creating valuable intellectual property at scale. Um, and indeed, a lot of it we don't leave to the market, right? We have science in which you don't get rich by being a successful scientist, but you do get enormous prestige by being the first to discover and the first to publish. And, you know, the second to discover and the second to publish gets nothing, right? Or almost nothing. That it's Peter Higgs who has the boson and the Nobel Prize even though he was one of six people working on the set of problems that were to become the Higgs mechanism at the time, and not the sharpest or the most insightful of them, as people say, that other people ought to have gotten there first, but they didn't, and he did. And he now has this large medal from the King of Sweden, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but when you gotta rely on money, well, only a large corporation with substantial market share has the incentive to do the R&D investment in order to push technology forward massively because only they can then produce at scale and get some of it back. And the benefits to society as a whole from, you know, say, again, TSMC having pushed forward exactly how we can make chips at an even smaller node um, the benefits to those flow vastly outside of even the company with the strongest market position. Um, so government needs to get involved in supporting research and development if we're going to attain anything like the potential growth rate of the economy. And the thing that concentrates a government's attention most of all at being willing to spend on R&D is war or cold war. Um, and, you know, they also invent lots of things we really wish they had not invented. But there are substantial, you say, collateral, not the opposite of collateral damages, collateral benefits from having a military industrial complex focused on high technology. And the United States has been the beneficiary of a great many of those over the past century. And, and so to, to bring it into more concrete terms, we have uh, this year a slew of legislation being passed um, sort of along mm -hmm. those lines. You have the, the CHIPS Act, and Infrastructure Bill, yeah. the Inflation Reduction yeah. Act that do various things, yeah. but, but are investing mm -hmm. money in technologies. Can you weigh in on the, those legislation and, and whether it fits your definition of uh, of um, government investment in technology? Well, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act does things that you know, we really ought to have done a generation ago. The most important of which is tilting the playing field in favor of experimentation in and build out of renewables. You know, and I said we really ought to have done this a generation ago. Um, we got within one vote of doing it back in 1993. But then, um, 43 Republican senators, 15 of whom had had reputations as environmentalists, six other Democratic senators, and then Senator David Boren from Oklahoma, the Democrat who gets all the blame, said they would not vote for Al Gore's BTU tax. Um, result of which is that, you know, well, 
we did it actually last year. We did it though in the form of subsidies of carrots rather than of carrots on renewable energy rather than sticks taxes on carbon energy. But you know, it's a generation later. Um, and so as a result of an extra generation of global warming, you know, right now the monsoon is 300 miles south of where it ought to be, which means Pakistan is underwater and the Yangtze River is six yards lower than it's supposed to be. And a hurricane that in more normal times in the olden days would have been category three looks like it's going to be category five and quite likely to hit Tampa right now. Um, so, yeah, I would definitely say that um, the IRA is worth doing. Um, Chips Act as well, you know, that, as I said back, it really is a substantial giveaway of lots of money to Intel and to others. Um, but Intel is going to use it at least semi-wisely. And even if Intel doesn't, it's very nice if Samsung and TSMC are not a chip duopoly, but if instead we have another competitor in order to curb their market power. All of us downstream who want to buy their chips really would like them to have competitors, even if those competitors do not in their turn make lots of money, they will curb. Um, they will curb a bunch of the oligopolists' ability to charge us higher prices. Um, so I'm kind of encouraged. I'm quite encouraged. It does show that the U.S. Congress, even in this time of major, major political division, um, can respond to some degree, at least, you know, to the problems that you know, our civilization faces as we try to move forward into a future in which still our technology is still rapidly changing underneath and we're trying to you know, hastily cobble together some running econo-sociological code to keep to hold everything together. Uh, we, we have an audience uh, question um, for, from mm -hmm. Sean who, who raises an interesting question. What do you think is sort of the optimal level of federal spending maybe in, in percent of G GDP terms on this sort of basic uh, uh, science research? Um, optimal level. Um, I think we probably overdid it a little bit during the late 1950s or during the 1960s when we had not just the Defense Department, but we had NASA going to the moon as well. You know, when it got up to more than 5% of national income, if I think. But, you know, down to 1%, the 1% or so that we got in the neoliberal era, I think, was definitely a mistake on the other direction. Um, I would still push for, I would, yeah, um, and, you know, things change over time. You know, that I have no real idea of how much um, of how much basic research and then development, you know, pharmaceuticals and biotechnology are going to need. And I don't have a strong view as to how much of it should be done by the government and how much of it should be done by private companies of one sort or another. You know, that on the one hand, you think that private companies are going to be more nimble. On the other hand, once private companies have invented a very powerful and wonderful life-saving drug, they then want to charge people a lot of money for it, which means a lot of people who would benefit enormously from it and 
since it's cost pennies per dose to produce, um, in some sense should get it, kind of won't. And that's a big dilemma that I do not have the answer to. And, and you know, one more question from our listeners. Uh, Hal raises an interesting uh, point, you know, based on our, our previous uh, segment about um, globalization. He, he wonders, is cross-border international remote work the next wave of globalization? How bullish are you on, on sort of this remote work uh, world? Um, I don't know. I oscillate back and forth, right? I oscillate back and forth between thinking that, you know, that something like this is almost as good as being actually in the same studio as you, you know, from my purposes. And it is enormously easier uh, to do. Like, you know, say I'm going to be recording with Ezra Klein in a week or two, who is actually just across the bay. And it really looks like we won't find it you know, convenient to actually assemble in the same place, even though it requires only one drive across a bridge, um, but would rather record kind of remotely. And that's an interesting and important thing. On the other hand, I have a fear that there are lots of people who in this plague and post-plague environment aren't developing the kind of true social network connections that they need to develop that you get from the fact that in-person contact has an extra dimension you know, of experience. That you know, talking on the phone to people or doing video calls with them is absolutely fine if it's people you know. But if it's people you don't know or don't know very well, there's an extra channel of information you get from meeting them in person, you know, which is a very important advantage to getting back to the office or getting back to the restaurant or getting back to the dinner or getting back to the conference. And I'm worried we won't be able to substitute um, for that effectively if we push remote work too far. Interesting. Um, I, I, I want to sort of bring bring it back to your book again. It's, it's called uh, yeah. Slouching Towards Utopia. Uh, pick it up at, at, at fine booksellers uh, near you. Um, a major character in the book is this this guy named Thomas Malthus. Um, yes. Can you explain sort of what his theories were? And I also want you to comment. So you made a point towards the end of the book that maybe climate change might be bringing us yeah. back to and making yeah. his theories more in vogue again. Well, you know, think of the world back before 1870. Um, half of your babies die before the age of five, right? That ch later childhood mortality is kind of not great either. You know, back before 1870, you know, your typical woman has something like, you know, eight pregnancies to get six live births, to get three children surviving to the age of six, to get two children surviving to adulthood, or maybe two plus a little bit because population was growing very slowly. Uh, and that means that um, that horrific and high degree of infant and child mortality means that one third of women who survive to reach the age of 50 do not have surviving sons. And things back then were so patriarchal that if you did not have surviving sons, um, well, then you were kind of had zero social power. You know, no one really cared about you. No one would go to bat with you. At best, you might find some nephew to protect you if you were lucky and become you know, the aunt who has to kind of sleep 
on the floor far from the hearth. Um, so whenever there were extra resources around, Malthus said, um, the way that the world worked was that people would say, let's try to have another kid in order to raise the chances that we have a surviving son to help take care of us when we're in old age. And that meant that Malthus said that humanity was pretty much doomed to poverty um, and that you needed to construct all kinds of social institutions you know, to try to keep the birth rate down um, in one way or another to have an even semi-good society but that something like utopia um, was something, anything utopian was clearly far out of bounds. Um, and yet after 1870, right, our growth rate of techno technological progress was so fast and did so much to reduce infant mortality by so rapidly that we shifted out of that. Um, kind of state in which people were desperately to have more children because they really thought they needed to reach 50 with a survivor. They were confident they would have a surviving child no matter what, um, even if they only had two. And that was a great change and opened up the possibility of making a world in which for the first time you would actually be able to bake a big enough economic pie in which everyone could have enough. And so by 1914, everyone was thinking that the future does indeed look very utopian. Um, and yet we look out at the world today, you know, and it doesn't look terribly utopian. Um, we have killer robots stalking the skies above Ukraine and Syria. Um, we have the monsoon 300 miles out of place um, and with bad consequences for the three and a half billion people who need water and the right amount of water at the right time in Asia. Um, and as I said, we have Hurricane Ian now significantly stronger than it would have been a generation ago, bearing down on a Tampa Bay that is, that looks like it's a geologist's joke about how to create a metropolitan area vulnerable to storm surges. Yes, and so, <laughs> That that is a somewhat dour note to to end on, um, right. but it, you know maybe maybe a call to action to to, yeah. to sort of look no, back we, on on this past yeah. century and and but see how we yeah we do have magnificent and marvelous technological powers um, in order to make things and organize ourselves and manipulate nature in amazing ways you know and. Even though we're kind of jumped up East African plains apes with brains so dumb we can barely remember where we put, where we put our keys last night. Um, collectively, we ought to be smart enough to deal with these problems. Great. Well, unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. I would love to talk with you for another hour okay. or so, but uh, yeah. I really appreciate you being here, Brad, and thank, thank you. you to our audience for tuning yeah. in. And Slouching um, Towards Utopia, number six on the New York hardcover nonfiction bestseller list last week. Again, I highly recommend it. Um, and, and we hope you, you can tune in to our next episode tomorrow. Barron's Senior Managing Editor, Lauren Rublin, and Deputy Editor Alex Yuli will be discussing the outlook for tech stocks and tech companies more broadly. So thank you so much for listening today. Stay safe and have a great day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.